Hello. Welcome back to episode number 76 of Creative Chit Chat Podcast. Um, this week I'm joined by Ed Broughton. Um, I've known Ed for, I mean, a long time. Uh, we used to share co-working space at Fleet Collective. Um, yeah, and I've been trying to get him on the podcast for quite a while. Um, and he finally agreed to it. And he totally hijacks the episode, <laughs> which I, I totally expected him to do anyway. So he throws a few questions back at me. And the episode actually centers around his 10 top tips for freelancing, um, which is a, a really interesting way to structure the uh, the episode and somewhat unorthodox. And it was really Ed's ploy to avoid actually talking about himself. Um, yeah. So I sort of let him away with that, which I'm a little bit annoyed about, but hey. Yeah, but I mean, in there, in those 10 top tips, there's some really phenomenal advice and a lot that I definitely agree with, some, eh. But, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a great, uh, uh, yeah, it's a, a sort of, I mean, it was a bit tricky for me to sort of navigate as it was a bit more unusual as an episode structure goes. Um, but yeah, it's still, there's loads of, loads of great stuff in there. Um, and also at the end we talk about uh, a project that we worked on together the only one we really worked on that completely and utterly failed um, and that's not to say that it, it might rear its head again and become something else in a different iteration um, but yeah you can go and sort of check that out for yourself, the link's in the show notes after you hear all about it um, but I think that, I mean, that's another thing that I think is really important um, is talking about failures I've asked quite a few people about it but I mean we've never really gone quite that project specific but yeah I think it's, it's healthy to, to talk about why things didn't go right and understand that in order to take it forward and, and sort of let that inform future practice but yes uh, before we get into the episode I've, I mentioned it last week we're still looking for your thoughts and opinions about livable, lovable cities Myself and Lyle Bruce, as Agency of None, are going to be curating the Dundee Design Festival 2019, which is really exciting. Um, and at the moment, we've, we're putting a call out to ask you, everyone out there, what makes your city more lovable and what makes your city more livable? So it's those two questions, uh, and we're looking for everyone to, to come and let us know. Um, and then the, the data that we pull back will then go on to inform and shape Dundee Design Festival 2019. So if you want to go and do that, please do. It is dundeedesignfestival.com and go on there and answer the questions. We very much appreciate it. Um, and it will be open for until the, I think it's the 6th of, uh, 6th of December. It'll be open until so you can go on and give us your answers. So you can have a bit of a think about it beforehand. Um, yeah, I will remind you again next week. But yeah, go and do it. Have your say. And yeah, something amazing could come of it. So yeah, and if you're new to the podcast or you don't already, I'm going to get this in again. Um, it's at CCC Dundee on Twitter and on Instagram. It's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. Um, or search us on iTunes or Spotify these days. Um, yeah, creative chit chat you'll find us on there or on any good reputable podcast platform we're on there 
Yeah, so let's get into the episodes. This is number 76, and this is with Ed Broughton. Um, well, I went to art school and went um, to study, and while I was there, I started making quite a lot of video art. And that kind of interested me. I had a really um, cheap Hi8 camcorder that I used to make things on, and the, the art school had editing equipment, linear editing equipment, I might add. So this is before... You could do it all in a computer program. It's where you shuttled from one tape to another, picking bits out um, and copying them over, um, which I've been quite glad to see the back of. Um, so I think I got interested off the back of that. I made um, a load of art films that have never seen the light of day um, and never will, that were all, um, I don't know if they're good or not. I'd have to watch them and reassess them. But that kind of made me a bit more interested in narrative side of cinema I suppose um, and so then when I came out of art school um, for the lack of anything better to do I actually went and then studied um, again TV and video production um, to learn the practical skills the industry side of things um, and then started working uh, freelance uh, halfway through that course and then didn't really stop Whereabouts was that? That was in Edinburgh at Telford College. I think this, the course still runs. But that was a um, very good practical um, HND course that just taught you very practical things, not so much theory, um, which I think is something that's a bit lacking in Dundee. I'm not sure you can actually do that here, um, if there's any courses that cover that. But um, I think it, like, it genuinely is a... I think from my experience of the art school, it's like the they give you the skills to go and learn yourself so mm -hmm. there's not the, those technical skills aren't necessarily being taught in depth you're expected to go and, and learn them on on your own um so i don't know if if those those courses do exist across like graphics video like any of those sort of disciplines and i'm not sure mm. i think what's quite good these days with the internet and youtube and everything you don't need to go and get, go and study these things it's all right there there's a mm. big um no film school type movement um online where you can I mean, I still now, even though I've been you know, doing this sort of thing for quite a long time, I'll still go online and learn new things because people are just there wanting to make videos, tutorials about various things um, in terms of production. So it's interesting now that there's not actually any barriers to entry, um, which I think is quite a big thing in terms of democratizing those who want to work in film, you know, want to work in film or um, video and I suppose also with the whole everyone self-filming for YouTube things, there's there's not um, there's no barriers to entry there, which I think is quite a good thing. You can learn everything you need to know about filmmaking for free online if you want to, um, and you can just go and do it as well. There's nothing stopping you doing it. Um, it's easy to say, I know, but everyone carries a good enough camera in their pocket that they could go and make films with if they wanted to. It's just whether you want to do it or not. So. Yeah. Anyway, I've got sidetracked slightly. So yeah, what was I doing? Um, yeah, stud studied in Edinburgh. Um, did my HND. I don't think I finished my HND. Um, I don't think I handed all the work in because I was working professionally at that point, so it didn't seem much like there was much point doing that. Um, I freelanced in Edinburgh for a bit and then moved up here near Dundee to Newport um, in two thousand and what? When was it? Uh, two thousand and five, I think it was. Um, 
thinking there might be some production companies here I could work for. There, <laughs> there aren't any. Um, I didn't realise how small Dundee was, um, which has worked out well in a way, I suppose, because the the nature of Dundee being such as it is, that it's, it is small, there's not masses going on here, you're forced to kind of do stuff yourself. So what pulled you here then? Wanting to go and not live in, I used to live in Edinburgh city centre um, and just had my first child and we didn't want to bring him up in the city centre. Um, so we moved to Fife. Not knowing anything about Dundee, not knowing anything about St Andrews, which was the other nearest place. Um, I didn't realise how small those places were. Um, yeah. Uh, and then after being unemployed for a bit in Dundee, I started working at Habitat University and was their video producer uh, for a few years um, until it kind of became unbearable working there. Because that was where you met Donna. Yes. Donna Holford Lovell. That's right. Donna of N Neon Festival and Fleet Collective uh, notoriety, I suppose. Um, and yeah, I think it was us sat in one corner of a room at Abitay, wishing we weren't there, that kind of propelled her on to go and make Fleet Collective with Lyle and get Neon off the ground. Just because when you're in that sort of position, um, doing a job you don't like, it really makes you think about how you can escape it. So I think the, uh, the seeds were sown there as we'd, we'd look at each other over a desk and just kind of shake our heads and say to each other, what are we doing here? Um, and not casting any shade on Abate, you know, it's uh, the nature of organisations to be the way they are. So it's not, um, I'm not kind of pointing a finger at them and saying it was their fault, it's really awful. There's nothing you can do about that, you know. Um, so how long after Donna had sort of decided she was going to set up Fleet did did it take you to move in? Um, I was the first person into Fleet. I was when there was just a big empty space and about one desk in it, um, and it wasn't all finished um, because that's how keen I was <laughs> just to just to, to get out. just to be yeah yeah. There was a crossover period where I dropped a day at Abate to concentrate on getting Bonnie Bray Productions off the ground, um, and. Yeah, there was a there was a bit of a crossover period where I was kind of working both both jobs, um, and yeah, that worked out okay. Was that thankfully. an easy transition to make? Like an easy jump to make from having like a, a full time job to I'm assuming it was full time. It um, was yeah to to go and freelance essentially or to run another production company. Yeah, I just had my second child at that point, so I had you know more twice the responsibilities I had previously and a small baby to look after. Um, as well so that's the perfect time to jack in um, a steady job to go <laughs> freelance but having done that um, a few years previously having left Edinburgh um, both um, Nikki and I quit our jobs in Edinburgh and without having anything else to move to so I think you just have to do it I think you can get too um, too scared maybe or too you know too worried that things won't work out because they tend they tend to because you have to you have to do something to eat. You're not going to starve necessarily. So um, I think you, you, it can be done. Do you, um, think, do you think you're an optimist? Either that or just really foolhardy. Or not, <laughs> you didn't think about it too much and didn't realise that, oh, yeah, you could be you could be out on the street with two uh, children. Um, 
or you know not be able to pay your gas bill or whatever so um but you know i think yeah i'm i would happily do that again not even not knowing the outcome necessarily um i think um yeah i think people get to um i don't think it's wage slavery necessarily that a lot of people have i think it's wage addiction so if you can rid your and it's not to say that's not a big stress having you know if you've got out outgoings you've got to make sure there's money coming in but i think people are addicted to getting a certain amount of money on a certain day every month and the the prospect of that not coming can be really terrifying for people but i also think that it's the, the way that society constructs things so mobile phone contracts and everything comes off monthly and it requires that it's built around the fact that you get paid at the same time the same day every month and you have direct debits and like so everything is built around that and then when you do go freelance like that that just doesn't exist anymore like you're at the mercy of your clients paying you paying your bills in order to have that money in the account at the end of the month yeah you are you are i think there's a there's a few things you can do to mitigate that in fact, I've, I've got a thing here that I've written ahead of this, ahead of time, which is my 10 tips for freelancers. So maybe we oh, could talk okay, about that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the whole, the whole, um, it, there have been a few hairy moments over the years where um, I've, you know, paid my tax bill and not had any money. Or I've had to, like at the start of this year, I had to sell a load of old camera equipment because I didn't have any money. But luckily it was that was sat around so i was able to do that i won't be able to do that next year if the same thing happens so um and what i try and do is have a buffer so and that's just about being um practical enough that you've got enough money in the bank that you can get by for those times when no one pays you um for a couple of months um and that leads to one of my tips actually um which is it's about expenses, really, about your life expenses. So we're not going to do this in order. But number five on my list of top 10 tips for freelancers is if you you want less, you can work less. So if you want less things, then you don't have to make as much money to cover them. And if you're kind of persistent about it, you can get your expenses down to probably a bare minimum or knowing that that's the cheapest it will be by going and haggling with your power company or switching or haggling with your insurance company or whoever until you know you've got this baseline of that's really cheap. Um, and then if you're not spending money um, on things like, you know, you don't need to run an expensive car necessarily. You know, you can you can avoid that and then you might have money to do something else or you've got then more leeway to not have to earn as much money because you've, you're not spending as much. So... So, I mean, the point is to increase your quality of living, right? Yeah, but I think, I think you can do that without it being tied to the kind of lie of capitalism that says you've got to just have more stuff to be happy. Yeah. Um, I've recently got out of the, well, not a wee, wee while ago, got out of the kind of iPhone cycle, which I feel quite pleased about. So um, they phones didn't, the iPhone didn't seem to be getting any better, so... And then the one came out that was a thousand pounds, and I just thought, no, that's that's um, that's a step too far. So now I've got some phone that no one no one's heard the name of that um, uh, I pay about eight quid a month to run. So rather than I don't know how much iPhones are, I don't know, forty or fifty quid or something to on a contract. Yeah, I, I don't have an iPhone either, so uh-huh. I don't know. So I think yeah, then you can if you're a freelance, you can get by on working less, can't you? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you you work as much as the lifestyle that you desire. Yeah, I suppose so. That's an interesting thing you mentioned the word lifestyle. I remember um, a number of years ago, just when I'd kind of set up Bonnie Bray, and that was going full time. Um, and it was an interview with someone who runs a large scale um, production company. And they were very disparaging um, about smaller companies of my size, like one or two people. Um, and was dismissive and disparaging calling it a lifestyle business as if meaning oh yeah you do do the work so you can have this lifestyle you know which you make you know that um i suppose what he was doing was growing a business and making it bigger and bigger and probably not enjoying it because then you have to look after lots of people and you have to make sure the work's coming in um because you've got to pay those people first before you can pay yourself and so on and so on um but the idea that um a so-called lifestyle business as he would have it isn't a valid way to to live um i found really you know quite insulting um because i think you can do that you can still make the good work and still provide a good service to people without um without it just the, the bad side of it you know running a business having to get work all the time the more boring bits accounting and tax and vat and all those sort of things without them bothering you it's doable and there's nothing wrong with a lifestyle business i don't think so you mentioned starting up um bonnie bray mm -hmm. who is bonnie bray bonnie bray is a scots phrase that means pretty hill <laughs> and it's elliptical and it sounds nice um and what happens is we tend to get a lot of emails back to us um addressed to dear bonnie so <laughs> despite they maybe they're signed by me or they're signed by Nikki you know they they, they they come back dear Bonnie um as if Bonnie Bray is a person and maybe Bonnie Bray should be a person but um like Tom Pigeon or <laughs> yeah I didn't I only realized recently that Tom Pigeon was two people is it is it two um, or more I, I think it's I think it's more now I right there's a few people behind that um I don't know exactly hmm but so, so where did the why choose that as a name for the when i first started freelancing in edinburgh um you used to get a publication called film bang and because this, this was kind of almost pre-internet and film bang um if you had a couple of broadcast credits you could get listed in there so people if they're looking for a cameraman or a production coordinator or a production assistant could look you up in this like book um this ring bound book that everyone had a copy of um and it was always the ambition to get into there because then you'd think, you know, people would call you, um, hopefully. Um, and I remember looking through Filmbang and there were these production companies that um, had Sc Scottish names. I now can't think of any of them. Um, but to me, that seemed like the ideal thing to aim for, that these small companies were doing, they're doing good work. You know, they're making videos for that play in whiskey, distillery, visitor centres and things like that. And that seemed like a really like something to aim for that was achievable was to have a small company with a Scottish name making video and film. Um, and yeah, that, why did I come? Yeah, that's, that's where that came from. I wanted something along those sort of lines. Um, despite the fact I know, I do realize I am English, but I'm glad you realized that. Mm. I say that like, I'm not appropriating Scottish culture. Honestly, I'm not half of our company is Scottish, so <laughs> that's fine. So I've never had a guest with a list before, so I don't know if you want to take take us through some other points on your 10 top tips. 
Yeah, I just thought that because this podcast is about, you know, we're talking about my journey and I think there's stuff I've learned along the way hmm. in terms of, I suppose, I've tried to work out whether um, what I do has been successful or not or how you, how you judge success. Um, which it, is a common theme of the podcast, which is nice. So how do, how do you judge success, Ryan? I knew you were going to try and turn the tables on me on this one. If you listen to episode... <laughs> Who's, um, who summed it up the best? It's difficult to say, but I mean, it, there are definitely common threads through a lot of the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and success, I mean, it, one of the most common things is it's different to, to everyone. Yeah. Um, although there are similar things involved in it. And it's the ability to live comfortably um, by doing a job that is fulfilling mm. um, creatively. And that allows you, again, to use that word, it allows you a lifestyle that is enjoyable, that is flexible, um, and that you're happy with. Mm -hmm. I think that sort of sums up what the general view is. Um, There are definitely specifics, and I think a lot of people are moving away from that idea of fame and fortune um as success and as these people we put on pedestals Mm -hmm. um especially within the the sort of the creative community and the people that i've spoken to because i realize that that's a very like specific demographic so the the view of the people i speak to isn't necessarily a a view of the mass population Mm -hmm. i'd agree with a lot of that i think the conclusion i've come to um is that it's about maybe having meaningful work Mm -hmm. so um when, back when I had a proper job, it was about work-life balance. And then I started to think, well, you'd, maybe you don't want to write off this thing that you do. Because um, if you've got work life, so one of those then says, well, if, 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 if it's work, then it's not life, right? So you're, you're negating this thing you might be doing 40 hours a week. Um, and I, can, I used to be very big on work-life balance when I had a proper job. Um, but then since then, I'm not. So... My view of that's changed slightly, but to, to, to write off what you do for your whole week, you know, nine to five or whatever, five days a week, I think that's really, that's quite worrying. I think that um, if you've got meaningful work to do, if it's meaningful to you, meaningful to other people, does something for society, then you're probably onto a winner. But to write it off as something you don't like doing for that big part of a week seems like a really bad idea. Um, so I remember even from, from being in Fleet, even the terminology you used for coming into work, you're very careful around that. Yeah, I was for a bit. I was trying to avoid words like work and office. Um, for a while, I didn't like either of those. So I'd say I was going into Fleet um, because I didn't want to think of it as a workplace. Um, that's just like a cognitive thing, I suppose. I'm not so bothered about that anymore. I'd rather not differentiate between work and life anymore and I know that sounds like the opposite of what everyone's striving to achieve I'd rather that the the it's just an aspect of your life that isn't defined in in that sort of way and then that way you can't be you can't be negative about it maybe so I think I'm trying to find a different cognitive angle to right now to kind of latch on to that um and I think maybe I get most most frustrated when I do work that um I realize that no one's going to watch it. It's just going to, it's ticking a box somewhere um, and I'll send it to them and maybe no one might, might even watch it. Um, and that's fine because then, you know, on one hand, I'm, I'm hopefully probably getting paid for it. But on the other hand, there's a bit of you that thinks, well, you know, <laughs> I've 
put some effort in here into this so that and then at that point that's not meaningful you know um but i guess that's a trade-off but there's a lot of i mean i'm sure you'll you'll have suffered this before is having to make stuff for people that you know serves no practical purpose really or um endlessly changing logos at the end of a film that no one's ever going to look at that bit you know I've, there's been some uh, videos i've made where i've had to spend longer tweaking all the logos on the end graphic than actually doing the edit of the thing that precedes it and that isn't meaningful in any way because then i mean a project that can transition from being meaningful to not is that possible it can do, or there's um, the thing that happens a lot with the stuff I make is um, you'll be asked to make something and you'll put all you know, your creative energy into it and and your time into it and you'll make something good and then you'll hand it over and then they, whoever um, has asked for it then doesn't promote it because they haven't thought to promote it or, you know, you can make a, a video but then you have to get people to look at it or mm -hmm. else they won't look at it. Um, and that always feels like a real shame when that happens. Um, that's happened with quite a few projects where they've asked for something but then not thought what they'll do with that thing once they have it. Um, and good stuff that I have put effort into has just been, just doesn't go anywhere really. Um, what's a good example of that? Um, I made this series of videos a long, long time ago to encourage car sharing. This is all like pre-James Corden carpool karaoke we had people singing in cars and all the rest of it um and that was made for um some transport organizations um and maybe i mean maybe it suffered a bit because it was kind of pre-facebook um but they got delivery of them and then did nothing with them and that was a real shame because no one saw them and they didn't think to have any sort of strategy for promoting the promotional videos they'd ordered. So that seemed like a bit of a shame, a bit of a waste of public money. But yeah. Um. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's go back to the list. Yeah. Okay. So um, this is, I thought, yeah, I would like to recap. This is what I think I've learned um, from being a freelancer for. Well, mostly with, apart from the, the gaps where I have had jobs like at the university and, and so on, I'd say from setting up Bonnie Bray over the last eight years, I think it's eight years now, coming on for nine years, um, this is the stuff I've learned that I thought might be helpful. If there's anyone listening, um, I'll probably say stuff like, quit your job, and but maybe, I don't know. Um, but number one on the list is don't be a dick. It's a good, solid rule. It is a good, solid rule. Um, I think that um, the main thing I've learned is that if you're easy to work with, then people will come and hopefully get work from, ask you to make work for them uh, again and again, hopefully. Um, because the stuff that we do in the creative community, um, you and I know that filmmaking and graphic design and stuff isn't rocket science. However, the people who are commissioning it when someone says to their, their boss says to them, right, can you go and get me this thing designed or my website designed or make a film that covers this? They don't know what to do. And so to just be helpful and do the thing that they, they're out of their, you know, it's out of their comfort zone. If you can just make that as easy for them as possible and just not be a dick about it, then 
everyone's a winner, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that's a really important one. And then conversely, like, I mean, Dundee's not a big place. So if you break that rule, then it will potentially come back to bite you in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, it can do, it can do. This actually leads to number um, uh, seven on my list, about which is about Dundee. And um, Dundee's it's the place to get things started. Again, I think that's because of the size, not only because of the size. So you're kind of, with Bonnie Bray, there was no one else to work for, so I was forced to do it myself, almost. Um, similarly, um, that might be the case for a lot of other disciplines um, in Dundee. If you don't want to leave Dundee or then the surrounding area to try your hand in the big cities or whatever, then it's the great place to get things started because the people here, I suppose, creative community, possibly if you want to call it that, they will always help you um, and be happy to help you um, because that's the Dundee attitude, I suppose. Um, so yeah, it's the it's the place to get things going, um, and yeah. So I suppose if the thing you want if the thing you want to do doesn't exist, then you can just create it. So that's number that was number six on my list. Um, and again, I don't think there's barriers to entry there at all. Um, I think um, I mean I, I found it massively supportive. So I've I've been back in Dundee for. Just over four years, mm -hmm. um, and everything they've tried to get off the the ground or or, or do or, or get involved with, people are so up for it. Um, and you've seen the the sort of the acceptance of things where you think, oh, I don't know about that. Like you, you think about open close and how well that sort of evolved and been embraced by the city. And mm -hmm. I mean, that could have gone completely the other way. Uh, I think it's it's things like that where you you see people are just like right, let's make this happen and let's grow it and build it. And I think that's, it's down to the people, it's down to the attitude in the city. And I don't know whether it's also down to the sort of the timing at the moment where there's obviously, there's momentum and there's there's sort of money and focus being put into and onto the city, um, which I, d I think definitely helps. Um, how that ebbs and flows as we go forward, I, I don't know. Um, but it's it's kind of it's exciting at the moment. Yeah, I suppose you're saying people feel like feel like they can do stuff, mm -hmm. uh, and there's folk around to help. And yeah, that can make it happen. And again, there's potential like funding opportunities and things like that that are floating about because of the sort of focus on design and creativity and, and that I suppose the sort of peg that the city is hanging its hat on at the moment um, for its future. Yeah, yeah. No, open close is a good example because that's kind of came out of Fleet Collective. Um, and Russell, who I suppose to all intents and purposes kind of is open closed, was able, had people in Fleet nearby who he could get advice from to get going. And he, yeah, he was quite open to it. So I think you've got to be open to things. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's any barriers to being creative. Um, so this is number eight on my list. Not that we're doing it in order, but um, I think the, my example for that is that. Um, you won't take better photos with that expensive lens you've been obsessing about online. This is, a, I think, a, a trap that people get into about having the right gear. Well, they spend all days and days watching gear review videos on YouTube. Um, when did you realise that? Um, because, well, I've, I realised that pretty soon on because I've always um, had to, because I built up all my kit from nothing, essentially. Um, I've always looked for 
the maybe just the kind of most efficient option. So for an, um, and then learning to use that piece of equipment to the best of its ability, which if you keep doing that, you can you know you can get um, just as good footage out of a camera and lens combo that costs a few hundred quid as you actually can from stuff that costs five thousand ten thousand pounds so um again there's that thing where there's no barriers to entry because you 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 you, you can go and borrow a camera off somebody most people's equipment just sits on a shelf doing nothing you can go and borrow a camera go and do some work and get then get money from that to buy your own equipment but um yeah it's um if you're continually obsessing about oh yeah my, my work will get good or I'll be I'll be much more creative once I've got thing X, then again that's that kind of capitalist trap that's always gonna trip you up. You know the best camera you've got is the one that you've got with you, um, or the one that you're just you know you really know how to use really well. Um, a guy who works with me a lot still uses the same, and we've been using it for years. The same. Um, I think it costs. You can probably pick them up secondhand for about sixty quid, maybe sixty quid lens that we've used on stuff for years and it looks great and you wouldn't know and you could spend thousands of pounds and it wouldn't make a difference so yeah there's no barriers there um i think people will always notice the content of something so if the idea is good they'll see the content before the framing or exactly the way it's presented possibly um there's especially with video there's, there's you can get away with a multitude of sins and if you've overlooked something in an edit or in a rough cut it'll quite often come back without comment on to you what is a glaring error that shouldn't be there like the colors gone off or the sat you know pe people just don't notice you'll be amazed what people don't notice um that then you know you, you fix it yourself but, but is that because you've spent so long so many hours staring at that footage that you know and you notice whereas when they see the three minute cut then it's in a different context for them yeah I think it I think it is it's in a different context and also it's indifferent I think a lot of people don't um, actually care as much as you think they should do possibly <laughs> when you put all the work in um, it's like that last maybe 10-15% of work you do polishing something up in the edit you could not do any of that and no one would be would care really but i suppose that's about quality it's about, mm. yeah it's that's what gives you the quality maybe i don't know um i don't know i'm not sure what you think about that ryan <laughs> you just pass it pass it on while i think of the next thing um but there is there's that sort of rule where the like the amount of effort increases sort of exponentially the, the closer you you try to get so that last five ten percent is will take as much effort as the rest of the project um and it's at the point at which i think it's important that you decide at the point at which it's ready to put out mm. that it, it will probably like things will never reach perfection that's it's within logical time scales and budgets things will never reach perfection um and i think the sooner you realise that, the better. But mm -hmm. there has to be that bar, so you have to get it to that certain level of quality without killing yourself type thing. Mm -hmm. Not pulling all-nighters and things like that, but having a, a much healthier um, relationship with the work that you're putting out. I mm -hmm. think that's that's important. Yeah, And you have to hold yourself to a standard. 
but you have to know when it's ready. Yeah, I think. And it's at the same time as you, you sort of you know when you have to stop playing and start refining, and, and like at the points in which your process, you have to get to know your own process, um, so that you know when it's ready to go to the client mm. and say, right, let's put this out. Yeah, I think you do. Need, I think you get to the point where you instinctively know whether that's good or whether it should be something else should be done to it because you can tweak stuff forever but i think i think you get to a point where you know or you get to a point after a number of years where you know um yeah. but yeah that's a sort of instinctual gut feeling that comes with experience and time i think so now this does lead me on to number point number 10 on my list um about working hard you said about pulling all-nighters and all the rest of it mm. um and at the time of recording this there's been a lot of controversy about the people at rockstar who were working ridiculous hours and the culture there of just working yourself into the ground to get the video game out on time which i think is out this week maybe tomorrow tomorrow maybe. yeah so um and the thing i found from being freelance is that in a way working hard is a kind of a myth okay so by that i mean when you're working i suppose this you're working to a set budget um you realize then that um the, the more efficient you are um, on doing the project, then almost the more money you get paid for it, right? If you if you divide the number of hours you spent on it, mm. so you end up because um, you could spend a hundred hours on a project and then it gets down your hourly salary to you know one pound fifty or something. <laughs> um, however, if you can work smart smartly and you can be really efficient, then you can do probably do the same work if you work efficiently in three hours than you would do all, if you'd stay there all day and then you can go to the beach in the afternoon um or the library so i think um especially as we're moving towards like a post-work society i think we need to prepare ourselves for that by not spending all day in front of a computer when you say a post-work society what do you mean by that um, by that, I mean, there's soon, with the rise of the machines, I suppose we're not, there's not going to be jobs for everyone to do five days a week. Um, that, or with, with, you know, the jobs will exist, but they can be done. I mean, surely by now, the stuff that most people spend all day doing could probably be done in a couple of hours a day. But there's this culture of staying in the office or, you know, thinking that someone will be getting away with murder if they then leave, if they've done their day's work. Um, but I don't think that's making people happy staying in um, email has got a lot to do with it people think that um, email has to be replied to far and fast, like when did that happen? And I think it's also bringing email onto mobile phones which are constantly with you and having those notifications always on, there's an expectation of yeah. replying, but as soon as you reply you set a precedent Yeah. so as soon as you reply to a client at 10 o'clock at night they'll expect to reply at 10 o'clock at night every time they email. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think a lot of our jobs, or a lot of the jobs people do will vanish. But then uh, I'm a bit torn. I do realise on one hand that humans need to work because I think when they don't work, it doesn't work out well for people. I think there's an innate part of us that does need to be doing something. But um, we need that fulfilment, that meaningful um, endeavour that you're talking about. Yeah. But there's no reason we can't do that in a four-day work working week. No. Or a three-day working week. Um, so th is that something you have at the moment? Um, not at the moment, because I, I I tend to do a lot of projects at once. So, uh, or you know, kind of 
simultaneously side by side. Um, there's there's twenty about twenty projects on my to do list at the moment. Um, some of which need more uh, attention at different times than others. So and you know, and some projects just hang around forever, as you probably know that. Um, so no, I've not. Oh, did I? Did I take a day off? I might have had a day off recently. I mean, I don't work weekends or anything usually. Um, but no, I've not quite got that this thing I'm talking about <laughs> down pat. I think I'm doing too much. I think it's always quite difficult to say no to stuff, um, just in case everything vanishes. But is that when you're saying saying no to stuff? That's not necessarily client-based work. That's other side projects and personal-based projects. Um, no, there is no client-based client-based stuff. Um, I have been more recently being able to say no to stuff that as doesn't um, that I might have done a few years ago if the money's not good enough. Just knowing that it would be a massive drain on my time and there's no gain from it, um, either creatively or you know going forward um, in terms of getting more work from someone, maybe. So I don't know. I have to turn stuff down. Um, but yeah, it's quite a hard thing to do. Maybe that should be on the list: is learn, learn to, learn to turn stuff down. Um, yeah, because I mean, it, it's a privileged position to be in to have that ability to to turn down work. Um, but I feel it's a, a position, a, a desirable position for me. I think I would like to. Because as you say, like I would only want to do meaningful work if I could. Mm-hmm. So therefore, striving to only get meaningful work and turn away the stuff that's that's not is the the ideal situation to be in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I talked about it with Jan Sesnick. It's this sort of ideally you do a hundred percent meaningful, but it's inevitable you have to do some stuff. Like you have to do admin, you have to do emails and whatever. So what you're trying to do is constantly push that number up that percentage of meaningful work mm. and you're fighting to get to the hundred as close as you can um, as much as you can yeah or if you're doing enough like there's been enough of the the, the meaningful stuff that you can justify the stuff that's just mind-numbing you know um there's um someone asked me what i was working on and i needed recently i nearly started a big whinge because i was doing a project that was quite boring that again no one was going to see a lot of the work i do no one actually sees you know it's for internal purposes uh, and doesn't really it does see the light of day to like five people and that's you know important for them but um in a, on a larger scale i could be working on something for a couple of months and then can't show it to anyone but um so does meaningful work to you need that big audience no no it doesn't need the audience at all i think it's just got to be maybe well i, I don't know if if we th- it's more like Back to what I said earlier, if you think it could have an audience, but then it doesn't get one because it's not promoted, that's frustrating. But I was about to, I was going to say, I was about to start when someone asked me what I was working on, whinge about the boring project I was doing. Um, and then I realized, no, I had, I did have this other project that I was doing that was really interesting. So I then chose to not do the whinging and to talk about this other project that, um, that I had on the go. Um, it was a side project, um, essentially. Um, but yeah, so I think if you've got, I sometimes have to remind myself, okay, so it's fine to do this bit because this bit's good, you know. Um, although when you're really mired into something dull, um, it can be, you can lose sight of that, I think. Um, but yeah, I think you've got to, what's the way of summing it up? 
yeah, smell the daisies or something. <laughs> um, but this does lead into point number four on my list, Ryan, which I know you're curious about. Um, and that's that good things are free. So again, this is very anti-capitalist, that thing we were talking earlier about, that trap about just wanting stuff. So I have found that the good things are free. A list of the free stuff you can get that's really good. So I'll list these and you can tell me if you think they're good or not. You can get free cats free oh. from the cat home. Oh. They're free. Free dogs from the dog home. They're technically not free, though. They're pretty free. Mm. If you ask nicely, they give them to you for free. <laughs> Bicycles, books, they're all free. You can go to the library. Um and then you can do great things with all those items, cats, dogs, bicycles, and books. Um, often on Gumtree, people are just giving away perfectly good bikes that they've spent a lot of money on. That they've, they've vowed to themselves that they'll start cycling, and they never do. And it sits, they sit in the shed, and then one day they go and look in their shed, and there's a bike cluttering up the place, and they put it on, on Gumtree for a tenner. So, uh, or for free, even. So... Um, the stuff that you can do with your body is free. That's really good. I found lately that running is good. Um, there's other stuff you can do with your body that's free, like sex or swimming in the Tay. Those are good things you can do locally as well. Um, and none of that costs any money. So that means you don't have to do more freelance work to fund it. <laughs> right? So um, I don't know if you like doing any of those things. Yes. Yeah, yes, which is your favourite? <laughs> where's, your, where's, where's your dog? Oh, your dog's behind me. <laughs> Are you going to ask his opinion? Yeah, he says being walked is his favourite <laughs> free thing to do. Um, yeah. So those are all good things. Um, and th this also leads on to, in terms of doing stuff, um, the thing I've been quite a big fan of um in the recent years is working outside your medium or looking outside your medium um so yeah the thing i've realized recently in the last few years um is how great it is to look outside your medium or work outside your medium um because it can be really refreshing and i think in dundee there's a lot of opportunity to um experience different art forms that are produced at such a high level of quality that it's just amazing and it's all right here in dundee so um you know, if you get down, if you decide to buy a really cheap car like I have, then you've not got car payments every month. So that means you can then afford tickets to the theatre, maybe. And I think you should go. If you go to the theatre, you should go see the, the the shows. You should go see the dance shows. You should go to contemporary art shows. You should go to all the things that normally you would say, oh, that's not for me. Because in Dundee, there's, because there's not that much choice, or there's not huge amounts of stuff on, I found that if you don't, go and engage with all these things then you'll be stood staring out of your window as the rain hits it wondering why nothing's happening around here and some of those things are free some of those things yeah yep dca shows are free vna if you can get in the queue yeah if you get the vna at 10 a.m you'll be fine um and then also if you're not you know if you've got your living expenses down then you might have spare money to buy um tickets and i suppose the theater ticket there's the rep has a, a different show on every couple of months so there's room there to save up for it so go and surprise yourself i'd say because a, a lot of people say oh yeah that's not no that, that's not for me but i think you can really surprise yourself um those are things i got really into recently is kind of or in the last few years is stuff on stage 
Um, and that came around for doing work for Dundee Rep, Scottish Dance Theatre in Dundee. Um, that kind of opened my eyes to it. Um, and yeah, just go to everything in Dundee. That's the best thing you can do is be involved with everything. Uh, and if you're not sure how to do that, you can just get in contact with Creative Dundee and they'll tell you, won't they? Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. Follow, I mean, yeah, all you need to do is go down their Twitter feed and you'll find a million things that you could be going to see or do or yeah. people to meet and all the rest of it. Yeah. The only thing I've not got my head around is opera, but luckily there's none of that in Dundee. So, <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. My my mind isn't closed to it. But, um, yeah. Um, so how are we doing on the list? How are we doing on the list? Well, we've done quite a lot of that. Let's have a look down here. Um, yeah, we've done all right. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, um, the other bit of advice for freelancers is fake it till you make it. What do you think about that one? Uh, I have conflicting opinions on that. No. I have problems with people... I, I think I have problems with people being overly confident in things that they don't know very well mm -hmm. that really frustrates me um, and i'd rather that people said i don't know and get people in to help them and fill those gaps in the knowledge rather than trying to blindly fluff your way through something i think what i was more meaning rather than blindly fluffing your way through something is um if you know you can do it but you just don't have any proof of having if, that you can do it to show to anyone okay if you're pretty damn sure you can actually do the thing you've proposed, um, despite not having necessarily proof. And this is something that comes up when you, when you first start off, is you may not have a showreel, or you may not have a portfolio to show people, and then that stops you from getting these bits of work that, that would then prove that you could do these things, and then you can show them to people, and then they'll, they'll hire you to do those things again. Um, so I think if you do know you can do something, then just go, yeah, that's fine. I'll, I'll do that all the time, and go and do it, and then at that point you've done it. Yeah, I, I think, I suppose I'd look at it slightly differently. Like, like the same concept, and I, I I definitely get that, but I think you could even do things that you're sort of 90 or 80% sure that you could deliver and do. I think when you go beyond that, so when there, I sort of see it like concentric circles. So you have your comfort zone that sits in the centre, and you know, and that's your skill set, and that's your, your everything that you do every day, or the, the work that you do that's your sort of, your base. And then there's a, a circle outside of that, which is just outside of your comfort zone, which is it's where you can often thrive. It's where collaborations sort of tend to happen. Um, it's where the exciting things and it's pushing yourself and it's being uncertain. And it's, yeah, it's maybe thinking, oh, what if someone finds me out here? Mm. Um, but then there's a sort of extreme zone out with that where you really are completely up in the air. You don't really know what you're doing. You don't have the support there. That's the dangerous place, I think. So it's finding that sweet spot between too far and far enough. Yeah, I would I would agree with you. And actually finding collaborators, though, if you don't know how to do thing X, you go and hire the person who does. And then by the time you finish working with them, you know how to do thing X. And it's, yeah, you can add that to your skill set. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of collaboration. Um, a big fan. It's more fun to do it with other people. So if if we've got through all, I think we've done ten. My ten, 10. tips, yeah. Okay. So can we so. talk about failure now? Yeah, we can talk about um, the one project that you and I worked on that failed. Yeah. Well, the only project with as well. It's the that's a badly phrased, isn't it? We worked on a project. The only project we've worked on together, and it failed. Yes. 
do you want to describe the project or shall I describe it? Um, I'll, I'll do my best to describe it. I think um, so it came out of the it was a cultural tourism fund, um, which was Scottish Enterprise had put some money together to sort of seed ideas and create prototypes for um, things that were aimed at the tourist market. And I was looking at um, how we create a sort of an audio based tour or some sort of tour of the, of the city centre that, that creates an experience for, for people coming into the city. And I was looking at that and thinking, oh, well, there's lots of great history and stories tied around the, the architecture, the, the sort of the design and all the other sort of elements within the, the, the city that we could take people around. And I was kind of like, well, I'm not sure I want to spend weeks sort of getting everything historically accurate and perfect and sort of weaving this amazing narrative and story around that it'd be much easier if we just made it all up right mm-hmm. and and to my surprise i mean scottish enterprise went for that and hello scottish enterprise if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> and which was great I, i'd never never imagined to, to get the, the money to, to sort of try and make this happen and and yeah so we did and we it was at that point once we sort of realized we we're going to have to write this this script um that that's when we started chatting and decided right let's 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 actually do it properly and get yourself and script writers involved so it was zoe vendatozzi it was yes we wrote it we wrote that uh together um as yeah and i suppose it, it was the same time as when there was a big thing that's like fake news was the thing and I mean, it probably still is, but it feels like an old thing now. But it, um, so what we did was then to describe it. I mean, yeah, is it, are you ever going to let people see this? Should, uh, we, should we play an example of it? Okay. Um, I'm trying to think which one would be good. So it's essentially a spoof walking tour where you walk around. There's a couple of hosts who talk you through Dundee, um, except a lot of it's just cheap gags um, and pot shots. At, you know, of the council and it's all these sort of things. And just, um, just it's satire, it's a spoof, um, and all the rest of it, but it's presented in in such a way that you wouldn't immediately know that it's a spoof. And I think we, we got so tied up in in writing bits and pieces for it that, I mean, I have no idea what is truth and what is sort of put together and what is the, the sort of the untruths? Yeah, within it. that's right. And I think um, that's where the problem lay. Is we um, recorded it. It all sounds really good. It's put together into um, into a website which you can go around Dundee and you can listen to the. You follow the tour around and you can listen to the audio clips as you get, and you get talked around. Um, like a, it's a walking tour. Um, we tested it with a range of people. Um, we I got I got a folk along to test it who go to other cities and do walking tours, audio walking tours. Um, I've got visitors to the city, so folk who come from Europe outside Dundee to come test it. Um, And as we went round and listened to it, um, the the testers started to get quite angry and (laughs) annoyed um, because I think the main lesson is you don't want to hoodwink your audience. I think the main lesson there was you they in the genre of walking tours people don't want a spoof one they don't want one that's laughing at their expense essentially even if you do cotton onto it no one likes being taken for a mug and the audience for 
who would like to be kind of we thought oh folk will, will, they'll they'll click a little way through the tour realize that it's nonsense and then laugh at all the jokes no <laughs> we essentially made it a, a walking tour that didn't um didn't have an audience or had or made no thought to its audience or the audience would be about you know maybe possibly 25 people in dundee yeah and i think that it's that cliche thing that you, you shouldn't design things for yourself yeah um and i mean we had an absolute riot writing it and it was so much like fun and just creating these narratives around fictional characters and, and it was great fun and we found it really entertaining and uh, i mean our friends loved it mm. but what we didn't consider until testing phase was like how will the audience take this and being taken on this sort of they, true untrue like unclear journey of, of dundee's city they didn't like it at all we yeah. had to cut the testing short halfway through um I, I was there leading the testing and i was getting kind of um shouted at by folk who felt like they'd been lied to um what they didn't realize was the extent that they'd been lied to i think they they thought it was um someone said they thought maybe about um 20% of it was made up and 80% was kind of true historical fact or architectural fact or whatever we were looking at. And actually it was more like the other way around. So and at that point I didn't want to say, yeah, no, actually it's worse than you think. It's all hooey because that would have <laughs> made it worse. Um, so what are you planning to do with um, this? Is just, are you ever going to make it public? Well, I don't, uh, I'm trying to find a We kind of have clip. to share it now, right? Because people yeah. want to listen to it. I think they will. So what's the, the this one line? I'm really that I I'm kind of um, I'm just going to try and find it that I really wish had um, seen the light of day. Um, yeah, there's a little section here that I can play um, that I just I was quite interested to know what the the public the reaction to this would be. Um, but as it was, it never never able to get a reaction. Let me try and play this. You can always drop in the clip later, but um Yeah. Dry dock next to the BA building. We have RRS Discovery, which went to the Antarctic with Scott in the olden days. And it's now possible to climb aboard and have a look at it. Some people have complained that the ship is pointing towards Dundee and that it's a symbolic notion that you can never leave the city. The new designs around the VNA means that the ship can never leave. It's trapped as it was in the ice of the Antarctic on that fateful expedition where the entire crew perished in the frozen tundra. But Dundee is not a frozen tundra anymore. Let's look at the V&A again. An interesting design detail is that there is not a single straight wall or right angle in the building's construction. The walls are curved on the inside and outside of the building. When complete, the V&A will draw 5,000 visitors a year and create 12 jobs. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I find that really funny. Yeah, I mean, it, there's lots of that sort of stuff in it. Um, I will share the, the, the link in the show notes if you're particularly interested in, in going finding out more and listening to some of the nonsense that we wrote. You can listen to it all now online at dundeedesigntours.co.uk. There you go. There you go, it's said now. So, yeah, it's now, it's now in the in the world and you can go out with your iphone and you can do it if you want to or you can just sit on the couch and listen to it you can yeah um and that's <laughs> no one will want to maybe some of your audience will want to but um yeah there is a demand though for a well-recorded um 
well thought out, well produced audio tour of Dundee. Yeah, an authentic tour. Yeah, it's a genuine history of the city. But um, you and I are not the people to make it. No, I don't really have the desire to do that. It's a shame. Um, yeah. But someone out there probably will. Yeah, and I mean there are tours that run. So I mean there's Dark Dundee and yeah, and various others. But um, yeah, there is. I think there is a desire for that. If someone want out there wants to take that idea, you can have it and make it. Yeah. So the main takeaway is that you should think of your audience mm-hmm. when you make anything. Yeah. Regardless of how small it is. Test it. Test it early. Test it early. Think of your audience, and I think um, get over the idea that if you make something and you think it's good, then it will be good. That's an ego thing, I think. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. If now, that, that's a good place to leave it because you've got to go to something. So, if anyone wants to find you, <laughs> wants to find Bonnie Bray, where would they do that? Uh, BonnieBray.co.uk um, is a very rarely updated website that you can go and look at if you want to. <laughs> um, and I don't tweet, I don't do Facebook um, for my business. So, yeah. It's all on there. I'm around. <laughs> um, yeah. Great. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. No problem. All right. So thank you very much to Ed for completely ruining my formula for creating podcast episodes and putting a bit of a spanner in the works. But it was, yeah. I mean, you'll probably get that from the chat that I do know Ed pretty well and kind of expected them to throw something up like that anyway. But it was a great episode. I think there's lots of really nice um, bits and pieces to take away from that. Um, Hopefully you found that as well. And yeah, do go and check out uh, Dundee Design Tours uh, to to hear about that failed, failed project. Um, Yeah, and hopefully... Hopefully there is a little bit of enjoyment to be taken out of it, but the understanding of, of how and why it failed. Um, and I think we're still looking at options of how we how we could potentially take that content that we've created and make it something that actually works in a different context for a different audience. And um, yeah, that's part of the future. So yeah, go and check that out. And again, I'm going to plug it one more time. Um, DundeeDesignFestival.com get on there and give us your answers to what would make your city more livable and what would make your city more lovable. Gathering all this data to inform Dundee Design Festival 2019 so we want to know what you think. So dundeedesignfestival.com get on there and give us your answers. Um, Yeah and one more episode before the end of the year um, next week for you. So it's even more pertinent to keep up to date with the podcast especially as it comes to the end of the season to know when it's coming back and everything else so it's at CCC Dundee on Twitter and Instagram it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee and you'll find us on iTunes, Spotify basically all the places that podcasts exist but yeah so until next week, until the last episode of 2018 goodbye <laughs>